All right, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Why don't you join me in Nehemiah chapter 9, please? Uh, as you turn there, uh, have you ever gotten a gift given to you that was like it was so big or so nice you were uncomfortable receiving it? Some of you are like, no, I'd like to experience that. They're like, no, never. Uh, Jackie and I have had some times where folks have really given us something like overwhelmingly nice, and she's always like, no, no, no. I'm like, yes, we can take it. Let's power through. <laughs> but it's how we respond to a gift that's really big that I want us to look at and consider this morning from the text. So in Nehemiah 9, if you weren't here last week, the people of God under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership are gathered together for a day of some specific activity. Verse 3 had said to us, this was last week, while they stood in their place, they first read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And then chapter 9 uh, kind of led us through what they would have read, what they would have confessed, and what they would have worshipped. So let me walk us through it real quickly. Verse 15 is one summary verse of everything that they read about. You, speaking of God, you provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. So it's the recounting of a thousand years of God giving, giving, and giving to his people. But what they confess, they confessed, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader returned to their slavery in Egypt. So God had given, 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 but they had been sniff-necked, rebellious, refused to listen. And they confessed this, which led them to worship. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. See, it occurred to me as we went through this that, that as much as we see the goodness of God in giving and giving and giving and giving to them, it's quite possible that the far greatest gift was what? That when they rebelled and when they were not thankful and when they did not remember, he didn't forsake them. He was gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. It is the gift of God's grace and mercy that is greater than any gift somebody could give to us. And so, uh, this morning, how do we respond to God's mercy? Now, how do we gain it? Because if you could gain it, it's not mercy. How do we respond to the greatest gift that you and I could be, give, could be given, the mercy of God. So chapter, last verse in chapter 9, all of chapter 10 is a response to God's mercy. So join me, last verse, chapter 9, what'd they do? After they had read, confessed, and worshipped, it says, now because of all of this, we are making an agreement in, in writing and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So they literally say, in light of God's mercy to us, here's how we're going to respond. And our response, we're going to write it down. Ever had someone say something to you and you said, would you write that down and sign it? What are you saying? I don't trust you. That's what you're saying? I don't trust you. I'd like it in writing. But this, the Lord didn't ask them to write it down. They decided to write it down. The Lord didn't ask them to sign it. They volunteered to sign it. What are they saying about themselves? They don't trust themselves. We've been down this road and have failed, failed, failed. So this time we're going to put it in writing. 
Not promises, 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 but uh, we're going to put in writing. And chapter 10 begins with those who signed. It says, the names of the leaders are Levites and our priests. And I'm not going to read 84 names. Now, you could test me, but I counted them twice and I Googled it. There's 84 names that, pe- that signed. And they signed representative of the people. So, uh, skip all 84 names and now join me in verse 29. Are joining with their kinsmen their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath. What an interesting expression. What do they mean? They're taking on themselves a curse and an oath. I think what they're simply saying is we're writing this down with the acknowledgement that we are promising this to God and recognizing if we do not keep what we promise, we're bringing on ourselves a, a curse. We're going to suffer the consequences that sin inevitably brings in our lives. Don't miss that. Sin, when, when people sin, we do not need to beat them up. Sin will beat them up. The consequences of sin are painful, destructive. So they recognize when, when they sign, when they agree to this, Uh, They're bringing on themselves a curse and an oath. And and here's their first promise. To walk in God's law, which is given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So promise number one. It's a promise to walk in God's law. Their promise to walk in God's law, this is simply a response of submission to God because of his mercy. In other words, anytime I promise to walk according to someone else's law, I'm placing myself under them. I'm submitting to that authority. And this is where they begin. You created us, you chose us, you led us, you provided for us. You gave us the law, we're going to submit to it. It is their response to God's mercy. It is exactly what the Apostle Paul says when he writes to the Romans, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and that might seem by because of the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now ask yourself this question. Why is presenting your body a response, a reasonable response to God's mercy? Why, why is presenting your body that reasonable response? Very simply, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and, maybe you'll read this with me, and that you are not your own. For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. See, this, it's very simple. They are saying, we are submitting ourselves to God because we owe our lives to him. Apart from him, we'd still be slaves in Egypt. Apart from him, we would have died in the desert. Apart from him, we would not be this remnant that has returned. Apart from him, we would not have been able to rebuild these walls in 52 days. Even remember, the surrounding nations recognized, wow, look at the work of God. So they're recognizing we belong to him. And so it's only reasonable that you would present your body to him because you belong to him. In fact, when we don't present our body to him, what are we doing? We're robbing the rightful owner of the body that he's purchased. That's important because sometimes we think this. 
when we do something for the Lord, you think, Lord, I hope you notice that because, wow, that was like sacrificial. And I don't mean this in a rude way, but I don't think the Lord goes, wow, thanks for the sacrifice. You belong to me. Years ago, during a power-up club week, I was teaching in the evenings, and I was teaching Romans 12.1. And so it was the week of Jackie and I's anniversary, and so I gave the teenagers this sob story that I had worked all week, and it was our anniversary, and I wanted to take her out, but I didn't have any money. So I asked a bunch of teenagers for some money, <laughs> thinking they would go, get your own money, old man. And these teenagers started pulling out cash and offering it to me, which was ruining my illustration. <laughs> because my illustration was such that nobody would offer except this guy over in the left who I had given him 20 bucks to give back to me. And the point was going to be there think, wow, look at him do what nobody else would do. And then I'd go, it was actually my money. Now do you think great of him? No, what you would think if he didn't give it was thief. And that's what we do with the Lord all the time. We, we rob God of the body that he has bought. And sometime, somehow we think big of ourselves because we're giving him what already belongs to him. So, very simple. They make a promise to walk, to live for God so that I belong to God. Oh, don't write that down. Don't write. Is that true? Okay. See, I, I knew you would be like, the coffee was, uh, was getting a little warm in the room, and you'd write down whatever I said. That's not true. I don't live for God so that I belong to God. That would be like we earn our salvation. So I apologize if I, well, I don't apologize if I tricked you. If I tricked you, cross it out. That's not right. Why do we live for God? Thank you. Yeah, I live for God because I belong to God. Huge difference. Huge. See, some of the, some of the saddest moments in my life are when I meet folks who, who wonder, did I do enough to belong to God? When I die... Did I do enough? And there's this living with this fear and uncertainty because mercy is attempting to be earned. And mercy is the greatest gift that you and I could ever be given. And what's our response? Well, sometimes our response in pride is, no, I can't take that. I would suggest our response is, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me live for you who has given me life. So I live for God because I belong to God. All right, back to Nehemiah 10, next verse, verse 30. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What are they saying here? This is about marriage, and they're making a promise that part of their walking in God's law is a promise to not intermarry with foreigners. We're not going to give our daughters to foreigners, and we're not going to take their daughters for our sons to be married. This is this promise to not intermarry with foreigners. It is a, a response of fidelity in marriage because of God's mercy. There's a number of things that we got to cover here in just this simple concept that they said, we're not going to intermarry with foreigners. If you think, oh, so the Bible suggests that interracial marriage is wrong? No, that is not what is being said here. This is not, and regrettably, this is part of our own confession of 
what happened in the church in certain points in history is that racism expressed in the church was expressed in this idea that it was sinful to engage in interracial marriage. But that's not even what they're committing to here in Nehemiah 10. It's not a racial issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a faith issue. I want you to write it down and then I will uh, explain. It's about a commitment to a spouse of common faith, not of common race. This is about not intermarrying with foreigners, those who are of a different faith. So this is not about interracial marriage. Here's how we know. One of the specific foreigners addressed in Nehemiah is the Moabites. But if you've had some interaction with the Bible growing up, you may recognize that there is a Moabitess in the Old Testament named Ruth. And Ruth is a foreigner who, with God's blessing, marries a Jewish man. And actually, she is part of the lineage of the birth of our Savior, Jesus. So why was that okay? Because though she was a foreigner, she had converted and believed and walked with the one true God of Israel. And so as a Moabitess who converted and became a believer in Yahweh, there was freedom to marry. And actually, the Lord includes it in his lineage. I think that's important. Sometimes we put the Bible, uh, we use the Bible to, to support some of our prejudice. And we make it say things that it doesn't say in order to say things that we want it to say. And that's not what's happening here. This is about a spouse of common faith, not of common race. This is the idea repeated then in the New Testament. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. The marriage bond. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So this commitment, this promise to spiritual, to fidelity has an application first and foremost that is spiritual. This is what they're saying. We're not going to intermarry with those of differing beliefs because what that does to the marriage, what that does to the children, what that does to the grandchildren. So we're not going to do that. It's a fidelity that is spiritual. If you're single and you would like to be married, the scripture says if you're a follower of Jesus, marry another follower of Jesus. Don't unite yourself with someone who is not a follower of Jesus. That's the clear command here of scripture. So it's a, a spiritual fidelity, but there is also a, a physical fidelity. We don't have time, obviously, to unpack all of this, but the scripture indicates that God is the one who created sex. Sex is a good thing between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And spiritual intimacy is not to take place outside of marriage. Even if you love the person, it's not to take place outside of marriage. Fidelity is, physical fidelity is living under God's law. 
It's a fidelity that is spiritual, it's a fidelity that is physical, and it is a fidelity for life. In other words, God intended that when a man and a woman were married, that sexual intimacy would be limited to that relationship and that that relationship would last a lifetime. That was God's ideal. Now, here's what I want to make sure you hear. Can I have your eyes? Many listening right now have stories of infidelity and marriage that didn't last for a life. Listen, that's what's happening in the text. What's happening in the text is people who had been, not been committed to fidelity, who had engaged in fidelity, were making a new promise. And that's what I want to encourage you. Sometimes there's this sense of, I've blown it, I've ruined my life. And let's be clear, you have walked outside of God's commands if indeed there's been infidelity. Maybe you've experienced a divorce not because of your infidelity, but because of the infidelity of a spouse. And that has crushed you. The scripture says, if that's your case, you are free to remarry. But if your past has infidelity as a part of it, confess it, what'd they do? They confessed, they worshiped, and they said, Lord, we're gonna do differently going forward. So you can do the same. You could this morning go, I'm going to stop in what I'm doing. I acknowledge it's wrong. I'm going to worship the God who is gracious, slow to anger, and does not forsake. I'm going to commit to his purposes in marriage and in sexuality. You see the, see the incredible gift of mercy? We tend to think, ah, oh, we've ruined our life. No, we'll, we'll experience consequences. I won't minimize that. We'll experience consequences. But the Lord is gracious and compassionate. And you can begin again, because I hope what you're hearing is that's what's happening here in the text. It's people who have sinned and are committing to begin again. So if that's your story, and you think, he's looking right at me. (laughs) This is the Lord. I'm glad you're here. This is the Lord inviting you. Do what they did. Start again. Verse 31, next verse, Nehemiah 10. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. So their commitment, verse 31, is a promise to keep the Sabbath day. A day in which, as the people of God, they were intended not to work. And they had violated that command and were now engaging in commerce on the Sabbath. Making, listen, making that day, the Sabbath day, the same as every other day. And the Lord had said, for my people, this is a day intended to be a holy day. It's a day in which, in response to God's mercy, we depend and trust in him. Now, maybe you've never thought, huh, The Sabbath is a day of trust and dependence upon God? You just thought, oh, I thought the Sabbath was just not about working. Actually, at its core, listen, the Sabbath is about trust and dependence in this way. I am trusting and depending upon God that he will give me in six days what I need to live seven 
Now, in upper middle America, that's a little hard for us to get because your, your pantry has you covered for the next 30. But in this context, each day was a new day to work to gain what I would need for that day. And so it would have been an intense act of dependence of trusting in the Lord to go on the seventh day. I'm not going to work. I'm going to believe that God has given me in six what I need for seven. See, trust and dependence. So when we leave today, there's going to be a form. I'm going to ask you to sign not to go out to eat for lunch on Sundays. Why do you laugh? I grew up that way. Some of you did. Why, do we, why, why don't we sign? Why don't our elders sign on your behalf? No soup on Sundays. At least no Panera soup on Sundays. Why? I've referenced this before. This ought to be a verse that that as a follower of Jesus, you know well because it helps us understand how followers of Jesus deal with some of the stuff that we look at in the Old Testament. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. There it is, very specifically, a Sabbath day. Why are we not to live as judges in response to why some would work on Sundays and others would not? And it's not because, hey, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. That's not why. Here's why. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath, a day, is a shadow. But who cast that shadow? See, there's always a substance. You can stand in the shadow of a tree, but, but what's the substance? The tree. What's the substance of the shadow of the Sabbath day? Jesus Christ. A person is the substance of a day. So watch. They would one day a week give themselves to declaring by their lack of work that they were trusting and depending upon God. That day has been fulfilled in a person so that every day is now a day of trust and dependence. So, can a Christian businessman operate his business on Sunday? He can. Can a Christian businessman say, I'm not going to operate my business on Sunday as a continuation of a reflective trust and dependence? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think as I look around in our current culture and I see Business owners who give the day of Sunday so that people can have a day to worship as a great gift to them. To those who don't, I don't think they're in violation of Nehemiah 10. I think the shadow has been fulfilled in the substance of Jesus. A person every day Watch, a person every day replacing a single day. How does that work out practically? He, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that have to do with the Sabbath? Simply this. Because the shadow has been replaced with the substance. 
and the shadow was about trust and dependence. Now I'm recognizing it, that it is my trust and my dependence upon the person of Jesus for my salvation. For him to do for me every day what I could never do for myself. Do you capture that? The Sabbath was a reflection of trust and dependence. The person of Jesus is the fullest expression of God's provision for us so that my salvation is dependent upon what Jesus did for me as their Sabbath was an expression of God promising to do for them in six what they needed for seven. We are trusting in Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to take our sin, to take our punishment, and to give us his righteousness. I'd never be able to be righteous in and of myself. Recognize that? You would never, ever, ever, ever be able to be righteous in and of yourself. It's only what Christ has done, taking your sin and giving you his righteousness, that you can be righteous. And either I work and try to achieve it, or I trust and depend upon him, the person who has fulfilled the Sabbath day. And it's just not my salvation. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the nothing is you cannot bear fruit apart from him. It is his work. So not only is my salvation dependent upon what Jesus does for me, my fruitfulness, a life that actually matters, is dependent upon Jesus both living in me as the vine and the branch are one, Jesus living in me and Jesus living through me. It's a life of dependence. As we trust in him to give us what we could not achieve ourselves in our salvation, we trust in him every day to do in us and through us what we could not do ourselves, and that is be fruitful, to bear forth the fruit of the character and the work of God. So the Sabbath that they were committing to was a response to God's mercy. Our trusting in Jesus is a response to God's mercy. Our living a fruitful life, a response to God's mercy. The end of verse 31, I, I skipped, I didn't finish it. The end of verse 31 of Nehemiah 10 says, not only are they not going to... Uh, violate the Sabbath anymore by doing commerce on the Sabbath, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exact exactation of every debt. What's that about? Every seven days, there's a Sabbath day, a day of rest. Every seven years, there is a year, not of rest, <laughs> when you all like that one, hey, it's a year of giving the land rest and a year of forgiving debt. So on the seventh year, not to a foreigner, but to your brother, you go, your debt is released. It's called the sabbatical year for the people of God. I promise to keep the sabbatical year. What, what is... What is this for you and I? It's a response of forgiving others because of God's mercy. Think about this. I might loan you money. You would owe it to me. And then seven years, I forgive it. Because God has been merciful. God has forgiven us. But have you been waiting years to forgive somebody? 
Sometimes we hold on to stuff. Like we, we refuse to forgive. At least we refuse to forgive until they've demonstrated they're really sorry. As you potentially recognize that in yourself, let's read Colossians 3. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Forgiving one another is one of the most powerful responses to God's mercy in our lives. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he forgives, and therefore, I'm supposed to forgive. But we all have reasons why sometimes we hold on to things. And I want to, really want to ask us to just sit here long enough to go, am I withholding from someone else what God has not withheld from me? Think of the absurdity of it. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Imagine this, and I know this is just an imaginary, but imagine this. Maybe you work at a place where you have something like this, a complaint form. Imagine there is a complaint form in heaven. And every time you sin, God pulls out another form and writes your name on it and writes your sin. and then writes another one, and then writes another one, and writes another one. How high is your stack? Yeah, I love it. Some of you going, hmm, uh. Reams? Yeah, do you see? What, what has he done? He has reams of complaint form against us. And on each one, he took out his stamp and went, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. We have reams of complaint forms stamped forgiven from God. And then we have like seven that we have against other people that were like, "Mm -mm -mm mm-mm-mm. I know I've got reams forgiven, But not these. And you've kind of folded them up and tucked them in your back pocket. And you're just carrying them around with you. And this is meant, this text is meant to show us the absurdity of being forgiven reams and holding on to a few. Because I, I think you get this. No one has sinned against you like you have sinned against God. And so then build into a sabbatical year. But that's not wait six years. That's not carry bitterness in our heart for years. Let's simply go back and remember the reams that have been stamped forgiven And forgive. If the Lord is putting some person, some situation in your mind right now, believe that that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. To forgive, stamp it as it's been stamped for you. I forgive because I am forgiven. And now finally, they make one fifth promise. And it's actually a lot of words on this one. Let me give you the highlights starting in verse 32. We also 
placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Drop down to verse 34. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priest. In other words, for the priest to fulfill their function of the offerings, they would have needed fire. And for the fire, they would have needed wood. So where are they going to get the wood? Well, they basically cast lots to go, who's going to provide the wood this year? Verse 36. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priest at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. This is simply in great detail. That's why I tried to give you kind of the high level quick over all of those verses. In great detail, they make a promise to support the temple worship that God had defined was to take place among the people of God. And to support that meant a response of participating in the worship. In other words, it was everyone's responsibility to participate in some way for the temple worship. And it is, you understand this, I think, it's the responsibility of all of us who have received mercy in response to mercy to have our own participation in worship as the people of God. Now, when you think worship of God, almost all of us immediately think singing. But singing isn't even addressed here. Not because singing isn't worship, but because worship is so much more than singing. Don't equate worship with singing. Singing is a small portion of participating in worship. There's much more participating in worship like this. As each one has received a special gift, and each one has, if you have been a recipient of God's mercy, he has not only forgiven you of his of your sin, he has poured his spirit into your heart and in giving you the spirit, the spirit also has given you gifts. As each one has received a special gift, employ it, give it a job. In other words, put it to work. How? In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Do you see? Serving is a response to to grace, to mercy. It's not just singing. It's I participate in worship by serving as I'm gifted. And Paul writes the believers in Corinth and says on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. We see the word save and we think, oh, is this about saving? No, this is not about saving. This is about giving. What's his point? We'll only give if we set it aside to give. Because you know what happens to all our money if we don't set it aside to give? It all, it just disappears. Have you noticed that? Your money just disappears. It doesn't disappear. We spend it if we don't actively beforehand put it aside in order to share. This is a great principle, folks. He says, if we just have an offering and you weren't ready, you're not going to have anything. So... Be ready. We'll talk about readiosity at the word we made up as we come to the year end again of being ready to be generous to meet the, commute, the needs of our community and our body. 
But friends, part of our worship is not only the songs we sing and the service we give, it is our using of our financial resources and sharing and giving. And we'll go into this later in the book, not according to a tithe, but according to the way God prospers me. Now, if, if you're newer to CFC, you may go, what, you guys don't believe in tithing? No, we don't. And hang in there, we'll get to Nehemiah 13 and I'll explain why we don't believe in tithing. We do believe in giving as God has prospered us, but not in tithing. But why do we give? In response to God's mercy, thanks. We give in response to God's mercy. Why do we serve? In response to God's mercy. Why do we forgive? In response to God's mercy. Why do we live a life committed to fidelity and marriage? In response to God's mercy. See, watch. Maybe you've never connected mercy and marriage, but God has chosen you and God has been faithful to you and God will never forsake you. So in response to God's mercy, knowing that marriage is intended to reveal a spiritual relationship, I'm going to seek to live in relationship with my spouse as God has chosen to live in relationship with me. Choosing me, faithful, not forsaking. So it's all in response to God's mercy. So guys are going to come, and we're going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper as the, the reminder of God's mercy in our lives. As they pass, and this, is, this will be a challenge for you, as they pass, the scripture says one of the things we should do during this time is examine our hearts. Did you know that? We're, we're to examine our hearts. So as they pass, would you examine your response to God's mercy in your life? Examine your submission to God, your fidelity in marriage, your trust and dependence upon him, your forgiveness of others, and your service and your giving. I'm just going to keep those up there. As they're passing, we're going to take together in a moment. But we want to respond. Hey, Ron, can I grab some, please? Thanks. Real quickly, this unleavened wafer, reminder of the body of Christ broken for us. This cup of juice, the reminder of the blood of Jesus by which our sins have been paid for. These don't save us. They remind us of the substance, the person of Jesus who does. And so, as we Remember his mercy by pay, paying our penalty and taking our debt. Would you examine your response to God's mercy? Just pray through this list of five. Whatever the Lord brings to mind that needs to be confessed, confess it to him and then worship him, the one who forgives.
Lord, these elements are the reminder of the price you paid to redeem us. They're the reminder that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts this morning to remind us of your great mercy and our response to it. As we remember and are confronted with our sin, thank you that you are the God who does not forsake your children, that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, never forsake. Thank you, Jesus, for your death and your obedience to take our penalty. We take now in remembrance of your mercy. Let's take together. invite you to stand. Let's declare this together. I would be hopeless without your goodness. I would be desperate without your love. Slave to the darkness if it wasn't for shame was met with mercy and now your mercy will be my song and all the glory and all the power of the cross and hallelujah and thank you Jesus I was a priest now I'm not and with your blood you you bought my freedom hallelujah for the cross and hallelujah and thank you Jesus I was a prisoner but now Your blood, you, you bought my.